Uh, good morning. It's exciting. Not only is it the first week of the month, but it's also the first lesson message in our new series on 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is an interesting book, uh, often passed over, sadly, but it's considered to be one of the hidden gems of Paul. Some think it's all personal and not about theology, but really there's a lot of rich and deep theology in it. In the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul is basically writing the letter in answer to those who are trying to undermine him and attack him. And that's why it sometimes gets overlooked. It's predominantly written in response to the attacks against him as a minister and as a, as a uh, apostle of Jesus Christ. But those are really attacks trying to undermine the gospel, trying to undermine the biblical teaching that Paul has been given. And so there's a lot of gems in there theologically to help us understand those things in contrast with the adversary. Now, it's the first one in the series, and I really want to spend a little bit of time talking about who the enemy was, because if we don't really have a good picture of that, it's hard for us to focus on the rest of the material. So we'll have a little background information, and then we'll have the message. Uh, unusual for me, but I think it's necessary here. When we look at 1 Corinthians, and we look at this first section, the first 11 verses, and our first set of sermons on that 11 verses, which will be more than one sermon on the first seven verses, <laughs> I want to take a moment to establish that context of who the enemy is. Now, I'll give it to you up front. His enemy there are the, the, the scholars of the Greek and Roman philosophy and their whole religious system. Remember back to Athens, where he, where he first encountered them, where we have our first recording of his encountering them. Now, you might say, but this is a letter to the Corinthians. Well, if you read the first verse, it ends with, you know, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. That, that is that whole region of Greece where the philosophers were. So I think it's written to all of them, but specifically to the church in Corinth. We read about that in Acts chapter 17 when he comes there. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, Silas and Timothy, at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw the city was full of idols. Idols and philosophy go hand in hand. They had rejected the true God, you know, Romans chapter 1, they had rejected true knowledge, true wisdom from God. They had replaced it with their own system of wisdom, and it naturally led them to have many idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. We're told that the Stoic philosophers were the number one sect in the Roman Empire, the number one religion in the Roman Empire. And some said, what is this babbler trying to say? While others said, he seems to be preaching foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know this teaching that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, that, therefore, what these things mean. 
And all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. Notice Paul's interpretation. Not speaking the great wisdom of ages, not revealing the secrets of the universe, which is what they thought they were doing, but talking about whatever they came up with that was new. There's nothing new under the sun. So he shares with them about the one true living God in the gospel and what happens. Skipping down to verse 32. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. There is no gospel without the resurrection of the dead. Christ and ours. But they mocked. Others said, we will hear you again about this. So a few believed, but most did not. This is the background of what's going on in Corinth. First Corinthians, Paul is doing battle with those who foolishly brought the false wisdom of the philosophers into the church. Now that always happens when the gospel goes to a new place. I remember a missionary telling me his great success in converting a whole village in Africa. He went in and he converted some villagers and they brought him to the chief and he converted the chief and the chief declared it a Christian village and they all became Christians. And I said, how long did you stay there? Well, I, you know, I was on a trip of evangelism, so I moved on the next day. Did you ever go back? Yeah. What were they doing? They were cutting off the head of a chicken and offering it to Jesus. <laughs> the purpose of the Great Commission is not to go out and baptize, but to go out and make disciples. Nobody was discipling them. But we have that habit, right? We bring what we know into the church. In America, we've brought our love of freedom into the church. And now our love of socialism is being brought into the church. In the area of Greece, the Greek and Roman philosophers were being brought into the church with them. And they weren't setting aside their old religious practices and their old worldview. Right? Religion is more than just the spiritual. It's our whole view of everything in life everything in the world and all it uncovers and includes. And we need to throw out the old and bring in the new when we come to faith. But it never works out that way, and it's always a struggle within the church to keep the local beliefs out of the practice of Christianity and to help them to see that they need to replace all of those things with God. Paul says... In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Jews demand a sign and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Why was it a stumbling block to the Jews? Well, they ignored all the stuff about the Messiah needing to suffer and die and only focused on him reigning forever, and he couldn't be the Messiah if he died. It was their belief. Wrong, didn't know the Bible, didn't pay attention to the Bible, didn't listen to Jesus' preaching. Why is it folly to the Gentiles? They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe in the possibility of a substitutionary atonement. They didn't believe any of those things relating to the gospel that God had taught. And so, stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. What does that mean? Well, God is not foolish. 
it means you know, the least wise-sounding thing you ever hear from God is still wiser than anything the wisest of men have ever thought. Why people think we need the wisdom of the Greek philosophers to make sense of God is beyond me. The foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. The weakness of God is stronger than man. No man has strength comparable to God when he is not even making the effort. He is almighty. And so then here in Second Corinthians, we read, Indeed, I consider that I am not least inferior to these super apostles. So these adversaries of his, he's taken to now calling them super apostles. Apparently they were claiming their, you know, their wisdom, their education, their skills at oration and debate. Their sophistry, oh, we won't go there. Anyway, we're greater than Paul's and made them super apostles to his apostleship. He said, even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Now, unskilled in speaking was probably uh, an understatement. Paul was known for his skill. But notice he writes these weighty things, but in person it amounts to nothing. So perhaps... In his speech, he was not a brilliant orator. But he is not so knowledge. He has knowledge of the one true living God, knowledge that none really had in that day because he was still writing it down and still teaching it, that God had given him directly. But he is not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things, Second Corinthians 11, 5 and 6. Paul goes on in that section to speak of how he humbled himself by working for his food in order not to be a burden to them. Now, what do arrogant, puffed-up leaders want? To be served. How can you consider this man a leader when he earns his own keep and doesn't ask you to serve him? These arrogant, false apostles would never have humbled themselves to the point where they would serve others and not be served. Whereas Jesus gave the example of wrapping a cloth around his waist and getting down on his hands and knees and washing the feet of his disciples, told them to go do likewise. The one who would be leader of all must be servant of all. It's the biblical teaching. So his humbling himself was something that brought about their scorn and contempt. They wanted to be served, and they would see him as being weak, being worthless because of this. Less worth than the people, since he served the people, the servant serves, you know, the greater is served by the lesser. Very sad. So he continues first calling on that point. Then he goes on to say the boasting that he's about to do is foolishness. In fact, boasting in our own greatness is the ultimate in foolishness. But he shares all that he suffered for Christ. Then he shared the visions he had had, the revelations the Lord had given him as an apostle and a prophet. And then he concludes with the thorn in the flesh, saying, But he, God, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with my weakness, with insults, with hardships, with persecutions, with calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. 
they would never have understood that. We'll get there maybe the end of next year or the beginning of the following year <laughs> as we work our way through Second Corinthians. I look forward to that. It's a wonderful section of teaching us about the humility we should have in Christ. So anyway, he concludes by saying, What a fool I have been, talking about his boasting. But you forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not all, at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with the utmost patience, with signs, wonders, and mighty works. Paul was given miracles to do to be a testament to the fact that God was speaking through him and God was using him, particularly in the authorship of the scripture, but also in his bringing this new knowledge built upon you know, the new revelations about Christ, which were veiled and hidden in the Old Testament, now have been revealed, but they weren't revealed until after Christ ascended, and they're being revealed now through the apostles, and they were given, therefore, miracle, miraculous powers to prove their right to speak. The prophet was always proved by that. That and the fact that they didn't contradict Scripture. And so Paul is saying that those signs were done amongst you with the utmost patience. You've seen it. You've seen the miracles. You know that he is, that he is a true apostle. For in what way, he says, were you less favored than the rest of the church, churches, except that I did not burden myself burden you with myself meaning he didn't demand they take care of him and feed him and clothe him and give him a nice home and wait on him hand and foot and he goes on to say forgive me this wrong <laughs> uh, apparently that was one of the big sticking points that he was so humble that he would earn his own keep and take care of himself and not expect the church to be a servant to him but was a servant to the church it seems like some were saying that the preaching of the cross was shown to be foolishness because of his meekness and because of the afflictions he suffered and because of his humility, that those things proved him contemptible and proved the Corinthians were unwise for having such a foolish and lowly teacher. So here in this first half of the first chapter of Second Corinthians, he gives us around a dozen reasons, maybe more, why they shouldn't be ashamed of him, why they shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel, and why they shouldn't be ashamed of themselves for having believed the gospel through such a man. And we'll try to point them out as we go through this section in the coming weeks. Of course, this being Paul's defense of his apostleship, of his teaching, of his preaching, of his conversion of the saints, doesn't mean there's nothing of interest for us. Quite the opposite. Jesus had said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Luke 9, 23. And Paul says, if you know, all who desire to lead a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. 2 Timothy 3, 12 and 13. What happens to someone like Paul is, in fact, what is appointed for all of us. If we want to be Jesus' disciple, if we want to lead a godly life, we will face persecution. And on top of that, he is not simply just sharing, you know, this is why I'm good and they're bad. Because he's saying, I'm nothing. We just read that. I am nothing. 
He's sharing God in the wisdom of God and the glory of God in the word to them so that they may be encouraged not in him and put their hope in him, but to put their hope in God who has been revealed through him. And that's an important point, but therefore there are many great encouraging things and great things we need to know in this book. And we will give time to them over the coming probably year or more as we go through this monumental letter. We should, though, read the first 11 verses to start our day, to start our message. Uh, We'll be looking at verses 1 through 4 or 5 today, and we'll pick up there next week with with more. So 2 Corinthians chapter 1, first 11 verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in all of Achaia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share more abundantly in comfort too. We are, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, and, if we are, and it is for your comfort and salvation, and if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for though we know that you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You must also help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to this wonderful book, seeking, Lord, to know you more, to draw nearer to you, and to understand the sufferings and hardships that Paul and the apostles and the preachers and the teachers throughout the ages and even every Christian will face in their life. We ask, Lord, for wisdom to understand these things and for your spirit to bring them into our heart and apply them to our lives and see our lives transformed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so much for my 10-minute introduction. <laughs> we, when we look into the passage, starting at verse 1, we see a standard introduction for Paul. But I want to point out that that standard introduction has something in it for us to understand. And that is 
that Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. This is probably the first of the reasons why they should have honored and respected him. He is a true apostle of Jesus Christ, not something by his own will. He he didn't decide this would be a great way to make money. This would be a great way to become famous. This would be a great way to have power. It was the will of God that appointed him. Even though he starts off many of his epistles this way, I think we should see that not as just some kind of generic thing that he writes no matter what and doesn't think about, but that he's writing to them to encourage them to remember that. It's not his gospel. It's not his glory. It's not his kingdom. It is Christ's. And he is an appointed servant. Many appointed themselves in that day as the ones he's, he's being attacked by, these super apostles, and he wants that distinction understood between them. The result, though, of this is they ought to honor his teachings and honor him by listening to them and obeying them. And so in verses 2 and 3, we come to his teaching that God is both our Father and the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the Father of all mercies and all comfort. Paul has been suffering a lot at the hands of these scholastics who had been warming their way into the church, seeking to undermine the biblical preaching and teaching and the biblical teachers. And this prompts him to start off his letter with raging against them? No. With a beautiful praise to God. It starts off with grace and peace to you. Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies, the God of all comfort. Now we should note, God is our Father. In verse 2, he's called our Father. We're, We're his children, not through natural procreation, but through the adoption of sons by his Spirit. We're told by Paul in Romans 8, 15 through 17, that you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. If heirs of God, then fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. What a great comfort to us, because we do suffer in Christ, be it just the giving up the things of the world to focus more on Christ, or be it persecution and even martyrdom. We share in his sufferings in order that we may be glorified with him. That is also our mind in this passage, when he's talking about our comfort and our afflictions. <clears throat> And so God is our Father. He has adopted us. He has chosen us before the foundation of the world to that adoption we read in Ephesians 1. And that is a comfort to us. He is not a stranger. He is not an angry judge. He is Father. Father to all the believers. And he's also here in verse 3 called the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this isn't referring to God as the Father of Jesus through natural procreation like the pagans of that area believed. They they believed 
The gods came down to earth and lay with women, some of them married, and had babies, and those babies became demigods. That's not what we're talking about here. We're not even talking about his miraculous birth through Mary. I think what's in mind here is he is God and Father of Jesus the Son, the second person of the eternal trinity, the beloved eternally begotten Son, whom he gave to die on the cross for the sins of his people. And that's what's in mind because that's what's comforting to us. The comfort is not that Mary got pregnant miraculously. The comfort is that he is the eternal son of God. Because he is God, his death for man was sufficient of infinite worth and can be applied to all of us. And that makes it a great comfort to know that he is God and to know that his father would give his life for us and that Jesus would willingly give his life for us as God's son. Those are the comforts that we have. And so the Holy Trinity is at mind in the work of the eternally begotten Son. Now in this passage, he's also called the Father of Mercies. And that is given here specifically as a reason to sing praises to God. How is he the Father of Mercies? Well, not just because he does acts of mercy. You know, Pilate was supposed to do an act of mercy by releasing one prisoner at the festival. He wanted to release Jesus, but the people, because Jesus was innocent, the people wanted him to release the murderer Barabbas. He releases Barabbas. Barabbas got his mercy. But, you know, that's an act of mercy. What we have in mind, I think, here, what Paul has in mind here is that heartfelt desire of mercy for his people. God desires to be merciful to us. But you, O Lord, are a God of merciful and glorious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, Psalm 86:15. His mercies are a reason to praise him because it is something he desires to do. I don't think the Jewish people went around celebrating what a great man Pilate was because he released the murderer Barabbas. But we can go about celebrating what a wonderful God we have, because though we did not deserve it, we received his mercy to ourselves. And so he is the father of mercies in that he has mercy, a full heart of mercy, which overflows to his children. And he is merciful to them, not repaying them what they deserve, but letting his son take it for them. What a great reason to be comforted in Christ as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. For, as, for a man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting to those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children to those who keep his commandments and remember his covenant. Psalm 103, 13 through 18. Now, his shows, as a father shows compassion to his children, he has that mercy towards us from his heart. When we are struggling, when we are worried, oh, does God still love me for what I have done? He loves us as a father loves his child. He might discipline us, 
But he does that out of love for us and out of mercy to us. If he did not, what would happen? We would continue on in our sin, not caring, oblivious, parted from God. So he shows us the mercy even of giving us discipline. Finally, in verse 3, he's called the Father, the God of all comfort. And that is yet another reason for us to praise him. Blessed be the name of God for his comfort. He is the only source of true, enduring, eternal comfort that anyone can find. All the other sources will betray our hopes and fail. People seek their comfort in relationships. They seek it in food. They seek it in alcohol. They seek it in wisdom, in power, in wealth, in strength, and many, many other things. But if they are seeking it apart from God, seeking their comfort other than comfort of God, it will betray them. It's fragile. It's fallible. Only our God can give lasting comfort because he is all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful, and all-merciful to his children. Now, I mentioned that we would keep up with or try to keep up with the reasons given for in this section for Paul not to be despised and it's clear that his adversaries were despising him for his afflictions now think of Job his friends saw his afflictions a proof of God's hatred for him um, the wise of the Greeks would see his afflictions as showing he's, he's foolish he doesn't know how to avoid trouble and how could Paul have avoided trouble well Don't preach a stumbling block to the Jews and don't preach foolishness to the Gentiles. They felt he was shown to be a fool, shown to be inferior because of the adversities that he was facing, the afflictions that he had. And they felt that his his message was useless, rendered useless by his affliction. Why would you want to become a Christian and end up like that? And I've heard that message. I've heard that in Cambodia many times. Why would people want to be a Christian when Christians are shunned by their society, are ostracated, how they can't be greedy, they can't enjoy the pleasures of the flesh, they can't do this, they can't do that. They see it as foolishness. You'll only have affliction. Paul, however, saw things quite differently. He saw the support of God in that, and he wanted them to see that his afflictions were a count of hatred for God. And that if you want God's love, you're going to endure those afflictions. We'll come back to that in a little bit. So in these first three verses, we really see the adversary's contempt for Paul being counted by this wonderful praise of Paul to God. God has a merciful heart, God is comforting us, and God is comforting me. Which the thought continues in verse 3 and 4, or the beginning of verse 4. Paul has great hope in God, and that hope in God and that comfort from God, not only is assurance that God is with him, but it is something that is useful in comforting then others. 
He is the God of all comfort who comforts us in our afflictions. God is our hope and our comfort in all of our trials and all of our afflictions and really our only hope. Think about Paul's ministry with the Corinthians and his life in general. And verses 8 through 11, he notes how he had already been delivered and expected to be delivered again. And when we get to that section of 11 and 12, sometime next year or the following year, where he speaks of these things, think about what he says, though. He says, are, are any of them Hebrews? So am I. Are any of them Israelites? So am I. Are they offsprings of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day adrift in the sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from river, in danger from robbers, in danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, danger in in toil and in hardship and in many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Apart from all these things, there's a daily pressure on me and my anxiety for the churches, etc., etc. What do we see in that? A list of gripes, a list of complaints? No, I see it. He's giving us a list of the places and the ways the Lord has delivered him. He was whipped. He was beaten with rods. He was stoned. Now those are, in the Old Testament, those are the steps. You know, the whipping was the light punishment. Flayed your skin. The beating with rods broke bones, and you were supposed to repent of their sin when you healed. The stoning was death. And in fact, the Jews dragged him out of the city and threw him in the garbage pile, thinking he was dead. Yet God delivered him from those, from the thieves, from the shipwrecks, from hunger, from thirst, from his journeys, from his people, from the Gentiles, in the cities and in the countryside, everywhere, God delivered him. Because God had a plan for his life, a ministry for him to accomplish. But more than that, even though God would eventually allow him to be put to death by the Roman emperor, God delivered his soul from hell. And that is the comfort we have. He was comforted by, in all of these things, God has been with me, God has delivered me, God has then moved me to the next place and the next purpose and the next wonderful thing, and I've seen more people come to the Lord and be converted. I have comfort even in all of my distress. God was his only hope. If he had hoped on his wealth, on his power, his authority, you know, founding his own school, which he was on the route to doing before he became a believer, if his hope was in those things, his comfort was from that, he would have no comfort. But his comfort was from serving God and knowing that God was with him and that he had that love of God in his life and that hope of eternity in his life. And so that is where the comfort must come. As I mentioned earlier, the worldly see the sufferings of the Christian as proof of the worthlessness of following the cross. And they see, we see it as evidence of following the cross. 
Remember what I said to you? This is Jesus talking. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my words, they will also keep yours. But these things they will do on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. John 15, 20 and 21. We will face those persecutions. They see them as evidence of the failure of Christianity. If Christianity, if my religion is not about what I get out of it, and so many people today are following that reimagining God, God is my servant, God is my help, God gives me my strength, God gives me my wealth and my comfort. They want to follow the God of their imaginations. And they see the sufferings of biblical Christians denying ourselves and taking up our cross daily and following him as evidence why they should not become a Christian. I think if more people actually understood that, the churches would not be so full of hypocrites as they are today. No, Paul was never expecting anything other than suffering in his life. Not not flowery beds of ease, not, not even continual deliverance from wicked men or from illness. From the beginning, it had been prophesied what would happen. Remember in Acts 9 when he's converted, Ananias is told to go and to baptize him. And Ananias says, what, Paul? That enemy of the church? And God says to him, go, verse 15, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he will suffer for my name's sake. Acts 9, 15 and 16. Paul always expected that tumultuous time in the service of God. And from that point on, from the point he was saved in Damascus until he was finally executed by the Roman emperor, he was pursued, he was hounded, he was harassed, he was persecuted. All of that time he needed God's strength and God's mercy And more than that, God's comfort for his heart. It would have worn him down and left him weeping like some of the prophets of the Old Testament. But God was with him and comforting him as well, and that enabled him to run the race to get the prize, 1 Corinthians 9, 24 and following, and to press on toward the goal of the upward call in Christ, Philippians 3, 14. He was able to do that. He was able to serve in what? we just read was one of the most horrible ministries anyone has ever had as far as comfort goes. He was able to do that because the comfort he had came from Christ, came from God, the God of all comfort. Now you might be hoping to say, well, that was Paul, not us. (laughs) We've studied about trials and afflictions, though. Count it a joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James 1, 3 and 4. I think I preached on that in my first sermon in this building. The blessings come from enduring our, our trials and, and the building up of our faith and the strengthening of our faith and the building of that steadfastness 
that we receive. What a comfort. But we know that that persecution comes first. Anybody who's ever tried to do something like run a long race knows that it's a trial and you face pain and suffering and discomfort. But in order that we may get through that, we have the comfort of God to rely upon. Peter says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. 1 Peter 4, 13 and 14. And we can take comfort in knowing that God has blessed us for that suffering and that the Spirit rests upon us because of the suffering we have for his name's sake. Suffering is a real and necessary part of the Christian life. Suffering not just the miseries of this life. The miseries of this life includes, because the world has been cursed, you know, all of our sickness all of our hardships, all of our injuries, all of those normal things, and the, the difficulties of dealing with sinful man, being robbed, being harassed, being persecuted, apart from Christ. And also really because this world is in the power of the evil one, and the miseries of this life include persecution for the name of Christ if you belong to him. This is going to be a part of our life here on earth. Yes, God could deliver us from all of that and we never suffer anything but that's not his plan he says in John 15 if they persecuted me they will persecute you it's a foredrawn conclusion that we will be persecuted if they persecuted him the people who hate God will hate his children because we are being formed back in the image of God and they see him in us unless of course they don't see him in us and then they don't need to persecute us this is why Jesus warned, up, they warned us, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. You'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of money will, many will grow cold. Matthew 24, 9 through 12. Talking about the time between Christ's ascension and his return, what will happen Many wanting to live their best life now will fall away when they find out how much it costs to be a disciple of Christ. Paul makes this abundantly clear to Timothy when he says in that passage that we have looked at, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Well, what a comfort to see that God has rescued us. Indeed, all who desire to lead a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Second Timothy three ten through thirteen. Paul's adversaries there in Corinth, these scholastics, definitely fall into that category of evil people and imposters. You'll notice Timothy was written long after Paul was in Corinth, and yet he doesn't really mention Corinth because compared to 
The physical persecutions are being flogged, being beaten with rods, being stoned, being imprisoned. You know, what he's suffering in Corinth is small. So he doesn't draw, draw much attention to that. But we will be hated by all nations for God's for Christ's namesake. Are you surprised? Well, you've been listening to me preach for a couple of years, so no, you're not. <laughs> Beloved, do not be surprised when fiery trial comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This is Peter. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. First Peter four, twelve and thirteen. We should rejoice in our suffering, because when his glory is revealed, we will be given a reward. We will have joy back in our life. We already read these things. And Jesus promises us persecution, but he's promised us blessing over and over again in his own words and in the words of the New Testament authors. God also promises us so many comforts coming in his word that will go with persecution and trial. When we exercise our faith and strengthen our faith, It leads to endurance, and endurance to a fuller, understa- fuller confidence and assurance of our salvation. That's what Paul says in Romans 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in the sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts of the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. As Jesus says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. That building up of our faith, that strengthening of our faith, that exercise, that running the 10K, well, 5K every day to prepare for a 10K, you know, that is what the Christian life is like. And the one who endures knows that they are saved. In a little while, the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Hebrews, quoting the Old Testament. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now, the assurance derived from enduring our trials is a wonderful comfort to the believer. We considered Peter's teaching earlier, but in the beginning of the book of First Peter, in chapter 1, verse 7, he says, The tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. It is a wonderful thing to face trials and to endure them, because that assures us that God is with us, We see his deliverance that assures us that we know God and that he loves us. And that is a great source of our comfort, even in trials that Paul is talking about in his letter to the Corinthians. They enable us, they train us better. But also in verse 4, we see they give us what we need to comfort others in their hardships. You know, we have all heard of 
cancer survivors, counseling and helping other people who have cancer. It's a lot easier to say, I've been where you are, and this is how the Lord preserved me, and to have them listen, than to simply come to them and say, this is what the Lord says about comfort. Yeah. Having been, maybe not in the same situation, but having been through trials and having been through deep waters and hard times and times where the spiritual things seem to fall apart is enabling us to more more confidently and with greater ability to help others. And that's why he says, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. Paul doesn't talk about having cancer, but if somebody was having cancer and dying, he has shared with them before, he's been close to death. He's faced these great trials. This is what the Lord, we look for in the Lord. This is where our hope is. Hope is not in today, but in eternity. Our hope is in heaven. Our hope is in the wonderful promises of God. And we have that hope also of a reward for God for persevering, which he has promised. In the ultimate end, we have that comfort, the ultimate comfort of knowing that we are not getting what we deserve. We're not going to hell for all eternity where the fire is never quenched, where the worm never dies, where we are tormented day and night before the holy angels forever and ever. We're going to heaven where every tear is wiped, where there will be no more sorrow. That is our ultimate comfort. And that is our expectation. And that is why Peter tells us to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, cross, casting all your cares upon him, because he cares for you, First Peter 5, 7. Now in this verse 4, there was another reason why they should not despise the true gospel or Paul, its appointed preacher. And that is that these afflictions they were despising Paul for, far from making him contemptible, have made him more fit, in fact, to serve others in their affliction. And that's the same for us. Enduring our trials and standing fast makes us more able to comfort those who are facing trials. Now, this response to their harassment, to their persecution, to glorify God and point out the wonders of his mercies and to point out to them